The following sermon was preached on September 12, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Pipa Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Rule for Worship on Exodus 24-7. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps you boys and girls have had the experience of, of playing a game with somebody and they change the rules. That's really frustrating, isn't it? When you're trying to play a game and there's rules for the game and, and suddenly people change those rules. You see, rules are, are very important in games. Rules actually define for us uh, what the game is all about and, and show us its purpose. And, and rules show us the, the right way that the game is to be played for enjoyment. And of course, life is like that. There, there are rules in life. There's, there's rules in the workplace. There's rules in the home. There's rules in school. Uh, but the greatest rules of all, well, we call those the law of God. The, the very law of God that does define life and our purpose in that life. And of course, the great summary of those rules we know is the moral law in the Ten Commandments of God. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, as we read in the preface of the Ten Commandments, God had delivered them. And as he now is about to enter into covenant with them, he does a very gracious thing. He gives them the, uh, the concrete revelation of his will. This will had been written on the heart of Adam and Eve at their creation. And it was greatly defaced in the fall, and yet it has remained in conscience enough for every person to be accountable to God. But it was a gracious thing for God to give his people, and through his people, the entire world, a, a clear record, a summary of God's moral law, of how he would have us relate to him and to one another. Now, we know that the first four commandments focus on God, and they're the greatest commandments. And the thing they probably focus on most is the worship of God. Have you ever thought about it in that way? But to whom we are to worship, we're to worship only the Lord God, the triune God. And the third commandment, what's to be our attitude as we worship him? How are we to approach him in the third commandment? And the fourth commandment gives us then the day that God has appointed for his worship. But this morning, we want to look at the second commandment where God gives us the method, or we could say the rule for worship. In fact, the little nickname that we use, regulative principle. The word relative simply means the rule. This is the principle of the rule of worship. Because all around us today, as we mentioned last week, people are no longer worshiping God according to this rule. It used to be that whatever country you visited, if you visited a Presbyterian or Reformed church, there would be a, a, a certain pattern uh, of the things that were being done in worship, and there'd be things that were not being done in worship. And the culture didn't really change those things. But today, that's not the case. You can't even go in our own country uh, and expect that you can go to a Presbyterian church if you're on the road next week that would worship in a way that you would want to worship God. The church is no longer being regulated uh, by uh, this 
commandment of God that we are to worship him according to his word. So what I want to show you uh, here is that the Spirit is teaching us the seriousness of worshiping God by revelation and not imagination. The Spirit is teaching us the seriousness of worshiping God by imagination and not revelation. We'll look at three things. That the Spirit prohibits worshiping God by imagination. The Spirit requires that we worship God by revelation. And the Spirit reveals the seriousness of worshiping God by imagination. Well, in verse 4, in the first half of verse 5, we have this twofold commandment. And in this twofold commandment, we see the Spirit is prohibiting worshiping God by imagination. Look at the words, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of any, uh, any, like, of, any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I want you to note that we have here a twofold commandment. One of the errors that's being made today is to merge two separate, grammatically separate imperatives, commandments, into one sentence. And so, so often, people are interpreting this as saying that you shall not worship God through any idol or likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. But even your English Bibles reflects the fact that we have a twofold commandment. A second thing uh, that is offered here in abuse of the scripture is that if we took this first commandment, which is not to make any likeness of God, that it in fact would forbid any kind of art. You could interpret it in that way. You should not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Um, but we know by comparing scripture with scripture that cannot be true. That uh, uh, God permits art. God revealed art, even religious and symbolic art, in the tabernacle and temple. Now, the key is found in the two words, um, an idol, which is a graven or cast image of God, and a likeness. But you have to make the connection, a likeness of one of these things to be like God. A likeness of God, of something that is found in all of the creation. So what is being forbidden here? is any type of an imaginative, inventive, picturing, revealing of God. God is a spirit. Moses picks up on this commandment, expands on it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where um, he gives a second edition of the law. And, and in the first part of chapter 4, he sets before us the principle of, of the sufficiency of Scripture. But he says, so watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky. So here you can see the interpretation that we're not to make uh, these images of God because he is a spirit of any of these things in the creation the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. Be drawn away and worship them and serve them. 
those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Our Savior summarizes this when he speaks with the woman at the well in Samaria, a text by God's grace we'll examine next Lord's Day. God is a spirit. Our confession says that God is a pure spirit, the perfect spirit, the creator of all other spirits. And it's the spiritual nature of God that, uh, because of that, that God forbids us to make images of him. In larger catechism 109, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, anywise approving of any religious worship not instituted by God himself, the making of any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Now you'll notice that in the catechism it says of all or any of the three persons. And this has been historically understood from this commandment and the rest of Scripture that this prohibits making visual representations of the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply in worship, but in pictures or didactic Sunday school material or whatever. And of course, the argument is, well, Jesus wasn't a pure spirit. Well, that is only half true. Jesus was not a human being. You need to understand that. Jesus was this pure spirit who took to himself a human nature. And as the God-man had a very unique person, or was a very unique person, the God who took to himself a human nature who is the God-man. Now it's true, while he was on the earth, he could be seen just as the angel of Jehovah could have been seen. And other uh, symbolic representations of God were seen in the Old Covenant. But we're given no warrant, for we do not know what our Savior uh, uh, looked like. Uh, but more importantly, to make any kind of visual representation of Christ is actually heresy because it denies this twofold nature in the one person. This is why, historically, that Reformed people have never had images of Christ uh, in any way whatsoever, personally or in their churches. So we're not to make images. That's the first commandment, and it's quite clear. We're to live by the word of God alone. So he gave us an image, didn't he? A very perfect and glorious image. This is my body. This is my blood. So here regularly, we, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that uh, the glorious eternal Son of God took to himself a human nature and is like us in all respects, except he had no sin. And now he is glorified in that nature with a divine glory. Now, the second part of the commandment is that we then shall not worship God through any image. You shall not worship nor serve them, or you shall not worship them or serve them. He's not talking here about the false gods. Of course, we're not to worship them, and he said that in the first commandment. No, he's talking now here particularly about worshiping the true God through images or in false ways. There's at least three things that are prohibited uh, uh, by this. And the first, it is simply setting forth an image that you worship the true God through. So that was what Aaron and the children of Israel did at Mount Horeb. This golden calf, this oxen, 
they were ascribing Jehovah's name and attributes to it. They, they thought they'd worship Jehovah through this uh, image. And, of course, that was roundly condemned. It's what Jeroboam did then when the ten northern tribes broke away. And, again, copying what God had condemned in the wilderness. He built two golden calves, one in Dan, one in Beersheba. And it was to keep the people worshiping God in the northern kingdom and not going to the temple that God had appointed. A second thing that is forbidden by this commandment is uh, worshiping. Well, let me back up. How do we do that today? How are we worshiping God through images? Well, obviously, that comes to mind if we have pictures of Christ or any of the Godhead in the place where we worship. There's no way that we can play the mental game that this is not involved in worship. It is. But we don't have that here. So how do we do that? Well, that's why the Catechism talks about mental images. When you pray to God, you ever have a mental image. I'd never thought about that before. And in our first church, we were having a discussion group after I actually had preached on something like this. And a dear, sweet lady, wife of an elder, uh, who had actually been raised, though, in a convent, and she says, well, I always have a picture of Jesus in my mind when I pray. Now, she was probably in her 70s. I always have a picture of Jesus in my mind when I pray. You see how that violates this commandment? That God is a spirit. Yes, even when you pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to pray to him as the eternal son of God who has taken to himself a human nature, but you're not to envision him when you pray. That would be idolatry. Now, the second way that this is violated is by bringing of the images of others and false gods alongside the true God. That's what Manasseh did. Manasseh, in 2 Kings 21, took an image of an Asherah and put it in the holy place of God. Brought into the place of worship, false gods. And, you know, we do that today in any number of ways. We have a civil religion in America. You put a flag, United States flag, in the worship hall. You've introduced something into the midst of God's people in worship that does not belong there. Or when these churches celebrate the Super Bowl on the Sabbath, it used to be they actually had Super Bowl Sundays and would actually have the television on until the NLF made them stop it. They didn't stop it because of conscience. But even now, they structure the whole day, all their worship, their church life, around what's probably the number one idol, in America, are those that would introduce uh, Masonic rites into church services and, and so-called Christian funerals are introducing idolatry alongside the worship of the true God. But the way uh, that is most obvious today in our Presbyterian churches is the third thing forbidden here, and that is worshiping God according to the practices of false religion and idolaters. And that's what we have spelled out for us in Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. Verse 32 was our meditation. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you're going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you're not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after your God, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? 
that I also may do likewise. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they've done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters and fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you should be careful to do. You should not add to or take away from it. Now, if you read carefully, listen carefully, you see what's being forbidden here? It's worshiping the true God according to the customs and practices of false religion or of the world. Now, that is a big problem today. In our churches, this is what lies at the base of that which is called contemporary worship, but it's actually worship innovations. We've brought the, the nightclub into the church with the music and even the arrangements and where people sit and, and drink their lattes uh, during uh, the service. We have uh, brought the world into our churches with uh, skits and dances and uh, television-type monologues. We brought the world into our churches when we are using uh, uh, PowerPoint to project pastoral scenes or, or film clips or anything else. We've brought the world into our service. Our worship is to be spiritual because God is spiritual. And God has revealed to us then how he would have us to worship him. Now, it's because of this that I say that the Spirit is forbidding worshiping God by imagination. Now, let me just make the final link for you. You might be wondering, well, now, I don't see the word imagination here. Well, do you see that God is forbidding inventing, inventing any image of God and any approach to God? And that is simply a species of trying to imagine ourselves what would please God. But there's actually a great principle in our larger catechism Question 99 gives us eight principles by which to interpret the law of God. And uh, the sixth principle states that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded. Together with all causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. Let me read it again. That under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. I call this the genus species principle. We have the Ten Commandments are actually called in the Bible the Ten Words. And what God has done is taken the most serious moral principle and put it there, and anything else that would either be like it, opposite to it, provoke it, or whatever, is forbidden by that commandment. So let's take, for example, the seventh commandment. It says, do not commit adultery. But we know from Scripture that forbids uh, homosexuality and, and fornication and, and bestiality and every other form of sexual perversion. But it also, we know from Paul, forbids those causes. So, for example, drunkenness, um, because drunkenness promotes unchastity, is being forbidden as well by that and other commandments. Well, that's the principle here. So... Uh, Related to uh, imagining God, making images of God, or trying to approach God um, by these things in worship, you see how that relates to simply, I am devising, by my imagination, I am inventing what I will offer to God. And surely, since it pleases me, it must please God. 
And that's how we reason. That's what is forbidden, worshiping God by imagination or human invention. Well, then we see that required is worshiping God by revelation. Now, you know the catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments. And, and almost all the Reformed catechisms are this way. Heidelberg is this way. What is required? What is forbidden? The very structuring of the catechism speaks to us of another very important principle in understanding the law of God. And that is the fourth principle in Larger Catechism 99. That as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So the opposite of what is forbidden is required. The opposite of what is required is forbidden. Now take, for example, then the first commandment. We're not to have other gods. But then Moses turns this upside down in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 11 and tells us that we are to have the one God as our God. We're to worship, we're to serve, we're to fear him, we're to swear by his name. That's part of keeping the first commandment. So then, if God says, you may not worship me by your invention, by imagination, what's left? God must speak. God must tell us then how it is that he would be worshipped. That's why we call it the regulative principle of worship. That God has revealed to us the rule, the manner of how he is to be worshipped. It's well summarized in both the positive and the negative, short of Catechism 50 and 51. The second commandment requireth deceiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. This is simply the summary of what I've been trying to show you. That we are prohibited of worshiping God by our our invention, our imagination, but then we're required to worship him by, by revelation. And that means three things. That we, of course, may not do whatever God forbids, but we may not do whatever the Bible is silent about, and we must do all that God reveals. Now that middle one's important because that was the Lutheran principle that guides many churches today, and that is if God's quiet about it, we can do it. But if God's quiet about it, what does that say? Has he revealed to you how to worship him? Or are you beginning to imagine, well, he hadn't said anything here, so this pleases me, and I will do it. No. What is forbidden is forbidden. What is not revealed is forbidden. What is revealed, then we then are required to do so. And so we take, throughout the history of the church, take this principle and seek then to understand what we're to do in worship. The principles repeated often in our standards in chapter 20, verse, section 2 of the Westminster Confession on Liberty and Conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And I left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it. So not just against it now, but in addition to it in matters of faith or worship. 21.1. 
The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all soul, with all might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So how do we come to what we do? Confession 1.6, The whole counsel of God concerning all things for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So here, what we see is, is the things that God would have us to offer to him in worship. We call those the elements of worship. We may only discern those by explicit revelation or good and necessary inference. That because the Bible says A, B, and C separately, A, B, and C together must also be true. The doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine that we develop in that fashion. So the elements of worship that we do, the use of the word in its various forms, the use of prayer, uh, preaching, the sacraments, singing, uh, vows, these are things all revealed in the word of God that he would have us uh, to do. But how we do them, those are the circumstances. Do we meet in a building like this? Do we have pews? Do we have chairs? What time do we meet? Uh, all of the accoutrements that are necessary to worship God these must be consistent with the word of God. But God has left that to the wisdom of the elders of the church to determine those types of specifics. So that's the regular principle of worship. This is why we do the things that we do at Antioch, while we don't do other things that others might do at, in their services. But when you talk about this, and I've heard it so many times, well, it's really a matter of style. You know, it's your tradition, or it's how you were raised, or it's what pleases you. But that's not at all why we do what we do. And it's not a smorgasbord of activities, and we can pick and choose according to our own predilections. You know, God has forbidden us to worship him by imagination. God requires us to worship him by revelation. And so we see the seriousness of worshiping God by imagination and not revelation. Calvin wrote that God abominates all such unrevealed worship. Now that's strong language. In, in our day, it makes people really uncomfortable. What does God say in verse 5b and 6? The Lord your God, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me 
and keep my commandments. God uses language of jealousy here because remember, this is part of God's covenant law. This is the law that God's given to govern the relationship of him and his bride, which is the church. Anytime that we as individuals or families or congregations refuse to live by that law of God, we are provoking our glorious and holy husband to jealousy. You see, he's jealous of his rights over us. He's jealous of his will in our lives. He's jealous of his honor in our midst. And he's jealous for his worship then. And so he puts out both a threat and a promise. And the threat indeed is quite dire. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. It's also a strong language. And I don't think many believe it. That if we do not worship God according to his revelation, in fact, we can take this commandment to talk about the more general principle that we must in every area of life be governed by the word of God, the sufficiency of scripture. Whatever we believe, whatever we do. If we refuse to do that in our lives or in worship, God says we hate him. Because we refuse to submit to his beauty, his glorious, wise will, and holiness. And it's very important then to see how seriously God regards this matter of worship. He says he's going to visit the iniquity of false worship on our families to the fourth generation. Now, I want to unpack this because the Bible tells us that God doesn't punish children for the sins of their fathers. That's not what he's saying here. It's much worse. What he's saying is, is if you as a parent or a grandparent have become addicted to false forms of worship, God is going to give your children and your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren, over to false forms of worship. And worse, because there is a, a, a continued declension. The first generation begins to play loose with God's word. The second generation becomes... Uh, more uh, seriously, uh, apart from God's word. And, and the third can be apostate. Because the children are following in the steps of their parents. I can think of nothing more serious to enforce this commandment as a parent or a grandparent than uh, this threat that God makes. Now, it's something that... Uh, it's very important, not that any of you here today would have trouble with this, but we'll see it. We'll see it in the life of Antioch. At some point along the way, we're going to have people visit us, and uh, they love the worship, they love the preaching, but suddenly they disappear. And you make a visit to their home. Well, you know, we really do like your church. It's, it's the way things ought to be. But you don't have things for our children. Um, and the, this big church down the road here has got all these different activities uh, for our children, and, and we're going to take them there. That's when you read this verse to them. You're going to kill your children. You're going to kill your children. If for their well-being, you get some youth programs in a church that is full of the world. You understand they're much better off with no youth program. No other young people if their families can worship God in a true and holy manner and be under a proper preaching of his word. 
But notice as well this concept of hatred. This applies the gospel to all of us. For if we have lived in contempt of God's law, it is a hatred of God. Now the principle is laid out here because in one sense, the second commandment covers all the other commandments because its general principle above all is that we are to be governed exclusively by God's word. And the next commandments, particularly the last six, tell us how that is to happen, how it's to work out in our relationships. We refuse, that means that we hate God. And if you find yourself here this morning, one who has refused to be governed by the word of God, with respect to his worship, his day, to your thought life, to any aspect of your life, if you refuse to be governed by the law of God, understand that God says you hate him. And there's only one way of escape for those who hate God, and that is to humble themselves, confess that hatred, and ask God for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, to give them new hearts. And if that's your case today, that's what you must do what you must do right now. It's important for all of you children to understand this, that you're in the covenant, and that is wonderful. But God wants you to make covenant with him. Because if you refuse to make covenant with God, if you simply trust all of these things you have because you've been baptized, then you're a hater of God. I know you don't want to be a hater of God, and so you must come to God in the way that he's appointed. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only hope of salvation. Because then look at the promise that's given here. Yes, it's very strict under the third and fourth generation, but to a thousand generations, a thousand generations, he says, of those who love him and keep his commandments. What abundant grace. This goes back to our pardon of sin, the declaration of assurance that in the goodness of God is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and full of loving kindness. God loves to save sinners, and he loves his covenant. He loves to keep his covenant generation after generation after generation. And, and you're, you're part of something small now, but you must not be discouraged by that, because here we have the promise of God to us and to our children and our descendants. And God keeps his promises. So we see the seriousness of worshiping God by revelation and not by imagination. So it's not a matter of taste. It's not a matter of style. It's really a matter of the very life and future of the church. What will happen to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in these days? He's given a lot of her over to false worship, idolatry, and Sabbath breaking. He's angry. And he punishes sin with sin. And so there is this awful declension. But you see, there is hope for revival and reformation. But where does it lie? Of course, in God. But it lies then in the means that God uses, which is good gospel worship. The church will not be reformed. Our denomination will not be reformed until we take seriously worship in the Sabbath. But as we do that, then we have this promise that God will honor himself in the midst of us, his people, singles and families together, who are keeping this great promise 
gospel prosperity. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.